You want to have a meal? Want to change your thinking? There's so much to learn, and it's all so fascinating. So let's begin. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we are honored to speak with our distinguished, bespectacled guest, Roger Phillips, coming to us from jolly old England. Roger is a natural nonconformist and a legendary godfather of foraging in the United Kingdom. Drawing upon decades of experience, his knowledge of wild foods is unrivaled. Known as Mr. Mushrooms, he is an expert mycologist, renowned for his work tracking and recording more than 1,600 species of fungi in North America and Europe. Considered a pioneer in the use of photography for documenting and identifying mushrooms, he has written numerous books and is considered a leading mushroom specialist. Now, in addition to wild foods, Roger is also an expert gardener and has written and presented two major six-part TV series on gardening for the BBC and Channel 4. We are excited to hear his story and learn more about his most recent work, The Worldwide Forager. In this new book, Roger explores the native habitat and history of many fascinating plants and fungi, both common and unusual. From the camas bulbs eaten by the Native Americans of the Pacific Northwest to the Italian and Spanish favorite, Caesar's Amanita, from hostas, the familiar garden foliage consumed as a succulent vegetable in Japan, to the newly popular Australian citrus fruit varieties. The Worldwide Forager is divided into four sections, mushrooms and fungi, flowers, leaves, and herbs, fruits and nuts, and roots and tubers. And Roger uses each one to provide a wide range of ideas for making your meals more colorful, delicious, and sustainable. Roger, thank you so much for joining us on Mushroom Hour. I enjoy doing this sort of thing. It's fun. It is. And you have an amazing, fun personality. Anyone who isn't aware of Roger, you know, you have that name, Red Roger, with the red glasses, your Omni de Beret cap. So I think you are making the Mushroom Hour even more fun with your personality and just being who you are. If it ain't fun, I don't do it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we have a lot to talk about. As you said, there's a lot of information to cover. I want to dive all into your history with wild foraging, wild cookery, and of course, your most recent book. But before we get into all that, I would like to know a little bit about the origin of Red Roger as we know him today. And I know that's, you know, a long tale. So as much as we can, just give us the highlights of how you developed this relationship with nature and wild food throughout your life. Well, as you'll see by looking at me, I'm ancient. I'm actually 87. And during the war, I lived on my grandparents' farm in the countryside in Hertfordshire. And during that time, we had some fantastic mushroom years. And so at the age of about seven, I was out with a bucket. I used to collect them in those days in milk buckets, <laughs> collecting wild mushrooms. They would be field mushrooms at that point, what you call pink bottoms in America. So I started, that was the first thing I did at the age of about seven. Very belatedly, I went to a little village school, probably at the age of eight. And the mad woman who ran this school, there were only about six pupils, one of her ideas was to forage food where possible. So 
Terrific. The first couple of weeks I was there, she sent us out collecting nettles. Here's a basket. Go collect nettles. We're having them for lunch. So that got me going on the foraging other things, not mushrooms. I wish more schools did that. I wish more schools did teach children about wild food foraging. Yeah, it would be great, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I know that you were also briefly in the military and realized that wasn't for you. Oh, yeah, that was very brief. We had what's called national service at that time. Mm. So at 18, you got called up and you had to do it. So I did it and I was sent to Canada to train to be a, a navigator in the Air Force. Mm. And at some point, I thought, bugger this, I'm not going to learn how to kill people. I don't want to do it. So I actually resigned. What happened was to be a navigator, you have to have a commission. So you're an officer. Right. And when I resigned, I had no idea, but they can't do anything to an officer. You can't punish him because he's supposed to be an example to the ranks. Okay. Uh, so in the end, they just had to send me back to England and let the higher-ups deal with it. Terrific. And I'm glad you made that decision because I can't imagine you being you know, some kind of military man. And I think you've given the world so much more in pursuing the path that you have and foraging yeah. and, and wild food appreciation. Yeah, it was a crazy time, of course. I mean, yeah. I'd never thought about it. I just turned up and they said, you want to go in the Air Force or the Army or the Navy? And I said, Air Force. I thought that sounded more fun. And yeah. it went from there. And then I started thinking about it right. a bit belatedly and uh, chucked it in. And so after that, did you immediately jump into kind of your role now as documentarian of, you know, natural subjects and wild food forager? Or when did that really become the main focus of your life? Uh, quite a long time later. I went to art school and studied painting and drawing. When I'd finished that, I went into advertising, working for Ogilvy's, the agency exists also in New York, and I enjoyed that very much. I ended up doing a lot of food, working ah. a lot of food and drink accounts. Drink, of course. Yes, suited me down to the ground. And so I learned a lot more about food and food photography doing that. And then at some point I thought, uh, this is stupid. I'm earning a tenth of what the photographers are earning, whom I'm commissioning, and I'm telling them what to do. I'll start doing that. So I switched to photography. Fairly shortly after that, I got into looking at nature and mm. produced my first book, which is on wildflowers of Britain. Your books span everything from flowers to trees to mushrooms. I mean, it's really a prodigious library of natural subjects. And there are beautiful photographs, which, as I take it, was not common of field guides of the day, was to have really rich, beautiful photographs. No, they, they all tended to be drawings. Right. And as I was in photography anyway, obviously I turned to photography, but I felt... It's much better, particularly with something like mushrooms, where when you find them, they're often nibbled and eaten and distorted and funny colors, varying colors and so on, that a drawing can't show you all that somehow. They can't give you the feel of picking up the mushroom. And I hope with my photographs, because I tend to show five or six views of each mushroom in each photograph, 
So you can see it from above, from the side, its stem, the gills, the way the gills are attached. I cut it in half so you can see if it discolors or whatever. All of which are incredibly important in identification. And I think that's really set the standard for modern guides and modern mushroom guidebooks is to have photographs from all those angles. I didn't totally invent it. I'm not laying claim to totally invent it <laughs> because they did it in botanical drawing before I started doing it in photographs. Botanical right. drawings tend to show bits, two sides of a leaf, the way the buds work and things like that. So in a way, I was interpreting botanical drawings into photography. Sure, at that leading edge of interpreting those old drawings into the modern photography. Yeah. Yeah. Now, were you, aside from your teacher that took you out foraging uh, in your early school days, were yeah. you tapping into any kind of British wild food tradition? Is there a rich history of Britain's relationship with wild foods? And is there any history of Britain's relationship with mushrooms that, that you were influenced by? I don't think I was influenced by it. But in Britain, people are very frightened of eating fungi. And it's a bit different in America because, you know, so many people came from Russia, from different countries where they do eat fungi. Right. Um, I'm just going to quote you John Gerard, who uh, wrote in 1597, and he referred to mushrooms, cold and damp, venomous and clammy, Few of them be good to be eaten, and most of them do suffocate and strangle the eater. That's not, what the thought of mushrooms. Not a glowing review by any means. Yeah. So I think it poisoned the British naturalist against the idea of eating mushrooms. And he was followed by all the other botanists and naturalists who wrote in that sort of vein for two or three hundred years. It isn't until the modern era that people have taken to eating mushrooms in Britain. It's something I bring up with my guests from the UK because that is the predominant idea is that Anglican culture, both Britain and then subsequently the US, have more of a mycophobia than a mycophilia. And have you seen that change in recent years? Have you seen a lot more people get interested in mushrooms and, yes. and fall in love with mushrooms? Definitely, definitely. It's a growing thing in Britain. So the younger generation are much more interested. And of course, they're very interested in the actual botany of the whole thing, what the purpose of the mushrooms is, what they're doing in nature, how they're supporting the trees, how they're basically the foundation of the whole natural world. It's probably that missing piece of our understanding in a lot of ways when it comes to the natural world. And I think it's a really good thing that people are getting past that 400, 500 years of mycophobia because it's yeah. really fleshing out our understanding of science in a lot of ways. That's right. You know, now where we understand how they support the growth of all plants, there are thousands of plants that are shown to have associations with mushrooms. The last figure I saw was over 7,000 different plants, and that was probably an English figure. So God knows worldwide. Right. And even, you know, grasses and every humble plant you can think of. It's not just the mighty yeah. oak that has these mycorrhizal relationships. It's really every plant out there. So it is, you know, it's absolutely every fascinating. Every tree has it. 
And of course, that's only, in a way, half the fungal job. The other lot are the ones that grow on wood because they break it all down and form soil out of the, the wood that's already developed. So they're returning the dead material back into the soil so it can be reused and grow new trees. So they're working at both ends of the scale, really. Exactly, which is thankful. Otherwise, we may be buried in kilometers of decaying matter if they weren't doing yeah, a good job on that we end. But it would be in a leaf heap. Yeah, we would be in a leaf heap. Obviously, you've been into mushrooms and wild foraging for a long time, kind of one of the progenitors of the modern movement that inspired so many people to get into this. Did you have any early mentors or any figures that stand out as inspirations or people that helped you along your journey as you got into mushroom hunting and, and interacting with wild foods? Yes, I think I did. When you take up a new subject, and it, the real subject was new to me as well, mm -hmm. although I've been mucking about and collecting things, when you get into a big subject like that, where there are thousands of species and you know little about it, you keep working away and studying it. So you read everything you can get hold of, you go, I joined the British Mycological Society. When I was in America, I joined the North American Mycological Association, a terrific thing. I would encourage people to join. They accept everybody at any level. Absolutely. A terrific thing. And then you meet the expert mycologists and you start to learn from the greatest experts. I think that is the best route for people that want to learn more about this. And I've often said that, so thank you for explaining that so beautifully. And I'm happy to hear that was your journey as well, was to yes, really sure. interact with that community. And soon you'll making these connections. And the fungal world especially is a lot smaller than you'd think. And a lot of the big experts are pretty eminently approachable when you go to these big gatherings or meetings. They are absolutely. They'll talk to you if you produce a fungus, particularly one they're interested in, they'll look <laughs> at it for you, tell you why they're naming it, whatever they're calling it, possibly show it you under the microscope. You know, they'll help. They're there to help at these meetings. So would you say community, the wild food community and the mushroom community has been a huge part of why you do what you do and has really enriched the experience for you? Yes, I think I've got a sort of passion for knowledge. I love taking a subject I know nothing about and exploring it and trying to find out more and more about it. So, I mean, as far as wild food is concerned, apart from mushrooms, mm -hmm. it's more of a cookery sort of area. So the people you're talking to tend to be chefs and people who are into it from that sort of side of things. You mentioned in when you were talking to me before, about TV. I did a TV series which ran in America called The 3000 Mile Garden. And it was with a, a lady called Leslie Land. And she was a cookery writer. And she'd started out at a restaurant in San Francisco. And I've forgotten the name. Uh, I met her at a mushroom conference. So she was also oh, interested in mushrooms. Of course. And um, I think it was in Connecticut, or maybe it was in New York, I can't remember. And she told me about her garden. She lived in Maine, in the backwoods, and she carted a hut there from somewhere and erected it 
in the middle of the woods and then cut down the trees and built a garden in the middle of Maine. And she specialized in tomatoes or tomatoes, you probably call them. And she grew about 20 different varieties. Anyway, I got talking to her and I organized the garden right here in, in London, in Eccleston Square. One of my things I do, you know, you end up doing all these sort of things for other people is planting and looking after a three-acre garden in the middle of London. And so we started talking about gardening, and then we wrote each other letters about it. And then my agent said to me, these would make a great book. So we Mm. published the book, and some television company picked it up right away and said, this would make great television. Let's do it. So we did it. They were half-hour programs. Half were shot in America, half were shot in England. And different um, crews shot each, of course. Yeah. And then they were cut together. And uh, the brilliant thing was, if you started getting a bit boring and wandering on and getting off the subject, cut, you're in America. So, (laughs) you know, it worked terrifically, a terrific sort of vehicle for being able to edit and produce, hopefully, a very interesting. Well, and that appreciation for gardening, especially organic gardening and non-conventional gardening and even small-scale urban gardening, people's interest in that seems to go hand in hand a lot of times with an interest in wild food, with an appreciation of mushrooms. All those things are in the same lexicon for most naturalists, I think. They absolutely are, aren't they? And at this time, I'm in London, we're in lockdown still. Right. I don't know how you are in California. Likewise, we are walking through stages, quote unquote, of reopening, but effectively still locked down. Yes. Well, it's causing people not necessarily to go foraging. They can't necessarily get out, but they become more interested in the plants. So they're starting to grow them in their backyard. We're going to have an influx of people interested in growing plants themselves and having a little vegetable plot and experimenting with all sorts of different things. I didn't realize that when I wrote my latest book, but in fact, it's a sort of help for people trying things. Yeah. So that book not only covers foraging, but it also covers bringing some of these and bringing some novel vegetables and things into your home garden. That's right. Absolutely. So, I mean, I've discovered we've got bamboo growing in the garden here and it was suckering, you know, putting out shoots. Yeah. I, had read and knew about bamboo shoots, how they're supposed to be edible. So I went out and hacked them all down, and you have to shut them just like corn, really. And they are absolutely delicious. When you get a fresh one, you cook it for about three minutes, steam it, serve it with a bit of butter or something. Fantastic. Bung it in a stir fry, whatever you do with it. They are scrumptious. And that's what inspires me so much by your new book and a lot of your work is you're encouraging people to see the natural world in a different way and really see this huge larder of untapped food resources, uh, especially things, plants that we don't think of, bamboo. I think there's some very famous videos of you eating roses. Yes. And that's something that many people don't think of, but it inspired us to start putting roses on our salads. Yeah, which is so easy to do. All roses are wonderful. They're all edible. The ones with scent are probably the best because you get then a scented salad. Mm. 
terrific. And the color, of course, brings life to everything. When we talk about gardening, wild foods, foraging for mushrooms, are these things that you think everybody can really integrate into their diet, even if they aren't called to become an expert? Almost everyone can, can integrate these things into their life. I don't know whether everybody can, but I feel their instinct probably is to do it. I think it's a natural instinct. Someone who doesn't do it, if you introduce them to it, mm. they feel it's good. It's sort of something moral, something going back to their ancestors. You know, it's, it's giving them something, some depth in their life, I think. I've found that myself. When you introduce people to these concepts, even if it is something they can't immediately take part in, they like the idea. And, yes. it, and it resonates with us on a very human level, the idea that, yes, we should be embracing the natural world in a way where we're able to take food from it and find these sustainable natural sources of food. There's something very primal and very correct about it. It is, and it's taking, I guess, back to the hunter-gatherer instinct that must have been there for thousands of years before man became civilized. Yes. You call it what we are now. If you, call, if you call what we are now civilized, a very good yeah. qualification, a very good qualification at these times. When we're talking about integrating wild foods and making this primal connection, what are just a couple of the benefits that people get from embracing more wild foods or integrating more wild foods into their diet? In general, they're very, very healthy. Mm -hmm. You're taking very natural substances. And one of the things to do is avoid anywhere that's been sprayed. So picking things up on the roadside isn't good. They may pick up the lead from the cars passing by. Right. You try and be in a natural area. So you, you're not picking up the false things that you get in regular store food, which has been uh, sprayed, injected, God knows what. I'm guessing you're not a big fan of pesticides and genetically modified organisms. I hate them. Yeah, I absolutely <laughs> hate them. Yeah, grow your own in your backyard. Dig up a little plot and grow your own. Likewise, likewise. I am. I was very much happy to hear that, and I had a feeling that was the tact that you take. Is I, you know, being against pesticides and everything. And I think this is a great time where people are getting more interested, even if they can't go out and get wild foods. You know, we're seeing these complex systems we've built our life on, especially the food system. Uh, they're a little more fragile than we may think. So yes. it is important to at least have those skills to fall back on, to know, you know, maybe what wild foods are growing around you locally, some areas to go to, or one of the best and most uh, resilient things you can do is have your home garden. And yeah. I joked with one of our local garden shop owners about, man, this place is busier than I've ever seen it. And he said, yeah, you know, everyone thinks they're a gardener now, which is probably a really, really good thing. I think it is a good thing. And I, I, it's back to the land or something. Get your hands dirty. Yeah, you know, we've gone so far into that area of convenience and specialization where certain people grow the food and other people just get it from the grocery store. And it's really good to see people kind of balance that out with a little bit more relationship with their food, I think is really, really healthy. And I think that sure. awareness. Having some idea of where it comes from and what function it has in nature 
apart from how it looks when it's on the table for a dinner party. Exactly. Now, what are some staple wild foods, wild food recipes, maybe just one that a lot of people have access to they might be overlooking? Um, I know you mentioned nettles. Are there any other wild foods that are out there, doesn't have to be mushrooms, that people can integrate pretty easily? Of course, there are loads. I mean, the the simplest thing, and everybody knows about that a bit, are the fruits. In autumn, yeah. you get the wild plums in all over America, blackberries and all the other berries, red Best. blackberries and white blackberries, and goodness knows what. They're fantastic. And when I was out, I came on another visit studying the Nez Perce history and the Nez Perce Wars. Another interest, of course, Native American first people. Which feature in your new book. History, which features a bit. And then I discovered that one of their principal dietary things, apart from eating elks and buffalo and what have you, was eating camas bulbs, which we've grown in England. We're a nation of gardeners. We grow with the pretty blue flowers. Never mm -hmm. thought of eating the bulbs, but they eat the bulbs and find them in vast quantities. And when we toured around some of these Nez Perce groups that are still in existence, they all had them. They had got pots of them that they'd baked, and they were a a little like uh, sweet potatoes, I guess, the nearest thing. Wow, I would never think of eating camas bulbs. And this is the perfect time to dive into the book, actually. What was the inspiration to write this newest book? I mean, you've been exploring wild foods for so long. What was the inspiration to do this world tour and put together this book of worldwide kind of ancient and traditional and native recipes? Well, I'd done an earlier book called Wild Food, but that was particularly about British things right, and traditional right. British things. And then mucking about, exploring the whole world and looking at it, I realized that there were so many other things from other nations all over the world. I mean, Central and South America, virtually every plant grows sort of tubers like a potato. You know, the potato is just one of them. There are loads of them with tubers that are edible. Dahlias are the thing everybody knows. They apparently, when they first came, I think, into Mexico, they discovered people eating dahlias and they sent them back to Europe. Presumably it was the Spanish, I don't know. Yeah. They sent them back to Europe and then people grew them and they said, oh, they have beautiful flowers. They're garden plants. And they started growing them in the garden. But they were growing them in Central America as food. So, so we've forgotten it. It's just disappeared. They started as a food stuff. That's, that's amazing they, to learn some of the histories. Looking into that, I discovered that in New York City, there's a little society who are going into dahlia tuba eating. And they're discovering which dahlias they think have the best flavors and writing about it. So I guess you could find them somewhere online or something if you go and look into it. So maybe there will be a group of people across America eating dahlias. Yep. And you brought up another great theme, and that is the idea that so much of the food that we're exposed to on this mass commercial scale is only one example 
of a huge family of different foods. That idea of potatoes, only one kind of root or tuber that's out there. Um, yes. It really expands your horizons, your mental horizons, so many ways to think about, you know, the vast array of foods that might not be commercially produced. It's really mind expanding and palate expanding to think of that, that the foods we find in the grocery store are just one tiny iota of, of that family of food that's out there. That's right. I mean, I'm growing a few different ones on my balcony as we speak. I mean, I could possibly go and bring them up and you could see them if you want. Shall we try it? Let's try it. I would love that. Okay. You know what? I can't pick them up. They're too heavy. <laughs> I'm, I'm growing yacon, which is from South America, mm. and I'm growing three or four other tubers, and then I'm growing one from China as well, which makes little tiny sort of Chinese artichoke, I think they call it. Fascinating. And you're able to grow these just out on your balcony. I'm able to grow them out on the balcony, sure, and they're flourishing. They're looking fantastic. I mean, I, I can't dig them up at the moment. They're not, they're going to be ready in the fall, I guess. Well, I think that's great for home gardeners to know is that there are these exotic, different varieties, uh, similar to the foods we know and love that are eminently available to us and can even thrive in our backyard gardens. Or if you don't even have a garden, they can thrive on the balcony. You can do them on the windowsill or the balcony. Yeah, you're not going to get a vast crop of them, but you're going to sure. get some. Sure. Fascinating. I just love that idea of being able to bring some of these wild foods into your sphere a little more immediately and have them on hand and develop an even more intimate relationship with them by growing them and using them more often. Now, you mentioned the Nez Pierce, uh, yes. the Native American tribe with the Kamas bulbs. Were there any other native peoples that you interacted with for the book or derived recipes and insights from? Yes. I mean, of course, a lot of different, I mean, the whole corn industry in, in North America goes back to the natives, right. the first people. And they had this wonderful um, system of growing three plants together, mm. which you'll probably come across. They grew corn and it grows big. And then they grew beans to go up the corn. So now you've got two edible plants. Because they were growing them in hot sun, they then grew squash, which has mm. great big leaves, which shades the soil underneath the plants. So you've got squash and corn and beans. You know, you've got your diet for the whole summer, really. Shows that a lot of things we think of as permaculture techniques or creating food forests, a lot of these modern concepts really probably harken back to a lot of first peoples uh, and a lot of ancient knowledge, really. That's right. I mean, because at first they were, uh, native people were accused of not being farming, not doing farming, but actually right. they did, but they did it in a quite different way and in different areas doing whatever was suitable. So, I mean, you know, all, all those things from South America, they were actually native people who grew them, um, potatoes and tomatoes, the most obvious examples. Yeah, it's amazing to think they were probably more in line with sustainable agriculture that we're trying to move towards today. They were probably much more in line with that. We just didn't recognize it at the time. I think that's absolutely true. 
circling back to mushrooms a little bit, what were some unconventional mushrooms that you may have found in your travels and used in some recipes? Are there any that stand out? Obviously, your book covers chanterelle and winter chanterelle and some of the fantastic edible varieties we know about. But are there any lesser known varieties that feature in the book? Yes, I mean, that culture seems to be mainly European. Mm. I mean, the, the Caesar's Amanita, which Julius Caesar was apparently passionate about. And the story is that um, Claudius also was passionate about them. But his wife, who was pretty evil sort of woman, I forgot what she's called, put death caps in a dish of them and finished him off. So that was the end of Claudius. He thought he was getting Caesar's Amanita. He wasn't. He was getting a mixture of death caps and Caesar's Amanita. Probably was delicious. I mean, I have tasted death cap. You just have a nibble and spit it out. You're obviously not going to swallow it. But it tastes perfectly good. That's one of the real dangers of death cap and other poisonous mushrooms they often taste perfectly good claudius may be our earliest cautionary tale then about the dangers yes. of amanita and the care you need to take with the amanita variety you know, you can go back apparently one of the earliest they think people to die of it was buddha died of eating one of the deadly mushrooms probably death cap itself it's a myth you know no one sure. can prove it and Oh, I love every mushroom myth, every mushroom origin of some religious text. I, I love all that stuff, even if a lot of it is not true or not provable. I think, it's, right. I think it's fun. Right. One section of your book is covering mushrooms. We've covered some of roots and tubers. When it comes to flowers, leaves, and herbs, one thing that stuck out to me was your mention of hostas. That yes. in Japan, they eat hostas. Now, a lot of people grow them. They're lovely foliage. We all love having them in our gardens. What is, if you know it, what is the origin of eating hostas in Japan? Well, I think hostas were first found in Japan and eaten by presumably the native people of Japan in early days, and they discovered they were good edible vegetables. Particularly, they eat them when the hosta comes up, like a grass, really. It comes up like an asparagus a bit. And that bit is called a hoston, as when it's about this sort of tall of a mm. big hosta. They're absolutely scrummy, and then they're soft, and you can chop them up and eat them raw in a salad, or you can cook them and steam them. And then when the leaves start to develop, they're still good edible things like cabbages. You don't want them too old, or they start getting tough. As long as they're not tough, they're delicious. I mean, my daughter is in lockdown. We have a cottage out in the country, and she's out there, and she kept saying to me, Dad, what can I eat? What can I So I said, the hostas will be coming up next week. Go try them. And she's mad about it. And they've been developing new recipes. If I ever do another book, I'll put all her recipes in. That's amazing. What a great place to be during quarantine is a cabin out in the woods, yeah. Where she has all these wild foods abounding around her. It sounds like a very creative time for her, if nothing else. It's very creative. She's, she was not interested in gardening at all. She's suddenly become a gardener, as probably millions of people worldwide have. Anyone who's grown hostas knows that slugs absolutely love them. And so I think that probably is because they are so scrumptious and delicious. That's that should right. have been a clue. 
it should have been a clue and we didn't realize we thought oh those idiot slugs what brains have they got they have got brains yeah they don't they're not trying to ruin your garden they're trying to eat something delicious now i mentioned earlier you were the one that inspired me to start eating roses are there any other edible flowers that you want to mention anything else that feature in the book in terms of edible flowers well there's another one that your first people ate which is evening primrose mm. which is a native american plant everybody knows it yellow flowers come up any old where spreads like magic by itself the flowers are delicious the whole plant can be eaten and the cherokees made tea i think from the leaves the shakers when they first came to america made tea out of the roots the roots can also be eaten wow and they used it for poultices so if they had a wound or they would bind it with some poultice made of oenothera so primrose in all of its forms all the parts of the primrose had some kind of use again that's one i haven't thought of so it's really fascinating to hear the history yeah. behind it and then another section of the book is something all of us are familiar with and honestly it's one of those areas of wild foods that sometimes i don't even think about because it is so obvious and that is fruits and nuts yes. I mean, wild fruits and nuts grow everywhere and they're absolutely delicious one that i saw featured in your book is this idea of australian citrus what are these Australian citrus plants that you talk about? And is there some way we can begin using those in our own food? Well, I think they will come. In looking into it, what seems to have happened is the first white settlers who basically came from England started clearing the land and removing all the native land so they could have sheep make vast sheep farms and grow sheep for meat. Right. In doing that, they cleared out all these native citrus plants. Funnily enough, Australia is a sort of a home of citrus plants. There are about 10 or 12 different native citrus in Australia. Wow. And so people have started rediscovering them. When I looked into it, I discovered I had a cousin who was growing them near Melbourne in Australia. And they were growing in particular this thing called the finger lime, which is about, literally about the size of a finger. The flavor is lime, but you just sort of cut it in half and you squeeze it and out come these little diamond bulbs of citrus flavored, lime flavored loveliness, beautiful appetizing they loveliness, which you then put on your fish or your whatever you're having. That's funny you say that. I always think of finger limes as almost looking like some kind of caviar, some kind of fruit caviar. That, they very, that's a very good word for it. Yes, a sort of fruit caviar. They are yeah. exceptionally appetizing looking. And then are there any any wild nuts of note we should know about that feature in the book? I mean, I have studied when I was over in America, all your, you have so many different forms of the wild nut, right. the walnut family in America you know, across Illinois and places like that, you have about eight different forms of it. So fantastic. And of course, they're all wonderfully good for you, these nuts, perfect for the vegans to get something, a bit of uh, something to keep them going. I'm not a vegan, I'm sorry to say. That's why I asked that question about nuts is I am a vegan and I need to know what wild nuts I should be looking for. 
But yes, that's something we often overlook is walnuts. Obviously, America used to have a rich history of chestnuts, which unfortunately died yeah. probably due yeah. to a fungus, unfortunately. But that's that's interesting. Well, I am excited. I want people to get this book and be inspired by it. From the layout of it, there's a description of the ingredients that you discover, the history, but then you also have fantastic recipes in there. Are those all recipes that come from your kitchen? Basically, I tend to sort of fool around with things and try <laughs> different ways of doing it. And if I hit on something that I think is reasonably good, then it goes in the book. But some of them I get from other people. Someone came to visit me and I had loads of nasturtiums growing. Mm. And that plant, the whole plant is edible. And she said, oh, what we do is we just take the leaves and we deep fry them. Oh. So, and you need about this much oil, of course. When I say deep fry, you don't need vast quantities. Half an inch of oil is bags, plenty of oil. You fry the leaves for about 25 seconds and they crisp up like potato crisps, chips. Of course, chips. you got yeah. the American vernacular. Yes, they sound like nasturtium chips. Putting together this compendium of wild food from around the world, what was that process like? Was this years of traveling different places? Did a lot of this knowledge come over time as you were doing other work? Was it one concerted effort to go around and put this book together? Of course, eventually it was. But no, it wasn't really. I mean, my business, my things from the Native Americans has come from traveling in America and following up. I made a, I've done a sort of artwork about the Nez Perce War, which I researched and traveled the whole route. It was about 1600 miles. Chief Joseph went with the whole tribe um, wow. across America. And we traveled the route and I did drawings as I went along and came back home and did paintings referring to it. But of course, in doing that, you meet people, talk to people, see what they're doing, what they're eating, everything. That's life. That's what I enjoy doing. And I just think that's such a unique aspect of this book is it really is a compendium of your journeys really over a lifetime of wild food experience. So. Yeah. You know, it all comes together in this beautiful amalgamation of, of hugely inspiring work. What have been some of your takeaways from writing the book, themes you're left with, impressions you're left with from putting this book together? Oh, that's a wide, wide question, isn't it? Yeah, small, small question. Let's sum it up in a couple words. <laughs> a small question. Um, some things are outstanding. Some of the mushrooms like chanterelles, you can hardly go wrong. They're very easy to distinguish. Hopefully you won't go wrong and pick a poisonous one, although it has been done. I love elderflowers. I love the early herbs like nettles and turning them into soup, making a spaghetti sauce with them. You know, just if it ain't fun, don't do it. It's something else I read in some of your interviews is about nettle beer. Uh, that's something yeah. I never heard of before is nettle beer. Yeah, that I discovered on my travels in Lancashire. I went to a place when I was about 20. And as you approach this place, there were little villagers selling nettle beer all along the street. You had to walk up a hill to get to the entrance. And there were about eight people, different people selling nettle beer. And it was fantastic. And of course, I'd never come across it before. So I had to learn about it. 
So while there may be mycophobia in Britain, there certainly seems like a, a vibrant relationship with other wild foods and wild plants. Yes, I think so. And we're hopefully we're getting a bit better on mushrooms. We have an organization now called Medicinal Mushrooms. So mm. they organize a conference and uh, people come and talk about all the things they've discovered, medicinal uses of mushrooms. And that, of course, is a no whole other aspect. They've been enormously important in medicines of all kinds. Do you integrate any uh, medicinal mushrooms into your routine or your kind of supplementation or healthcare routine? Yes, I have chaga, which mm. grows right across the sort of northern parts of America, is apparently very, very useful anti-cancer or help for people who have cancer. You grind it up and make a tea with it. And uh, Solzhenitsyn in Russia wrote a whole, referred to it in his book, Cancer Ward, as a very important help in curing people with cancer. Well, I've heard that as well, but there's a long Russian history and Siberian history with using chaga as a medicinal. Obviously, that whole area of medicinal mushrooms is becoming so prominent in the United States. We call it the shroom boom. So I'm yeah. not surprised to hear that in Britain, there's much more consciousness and much more appreciation and exploration yeah. of these medicinal, these medicinal compounds. And as we're talking about wild foods, one theme that comes up a lot, and I think people are becoming ever more aware of, is that idea of sustainability. And having talked with a number of different foragers, both professional and amateur, you know, I'm wrestling with that question of how extractive a practice foraging is or how to make it less so and try to make it more sustainable. Do you think there is a balance that has to be struck by that healthy reverence for nature and not being too extractive, but still getting enough from the wild food larder, as it were, to supply your needs. Is there some balance that has to be struck there in terms of sustainability? I think there is. There are too many people. You can't send a billion people out into a couple of woods to collect <laughs> mushrooms and be nothing left. You know, obviously it's got to be done with care and you've got to protect the environment at the same time. So you really must seek not to damage the environment when you're collecting whatever you're collecting. So if you're collecting wild plums, don't cut down the plum tree, just pick the plums. And I think that is something that we're all coming to grips with. And I'm really happy to see a lot of people becoming more conscious of that. Absolutely. So we're not overusing some of these resources. But I think it's important to recognize that there is an important connection we get from interacting with these wild foods. And in the case of mushrooms, a lot of times we're actually helping them reproduce by spreading spores to new food sources and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, of course. There is a sort of academic, particularly in Britain, academic stream of thought that says you shouldn't collect any mushrooms because you're damaging the life vitality of the plant, which as you suggest, is actually a load of rubbish because the plant is there to distribute its spores and right. it does it in any way. They do it in magical ways. You know, the group of stinkhorns produces vile muck on the top of the things and the flies are attracted to it because they think it's rotten meat and they step in it and then spread the spores on their feet. Mushrooms are designed to spread the spores. So collecting mushrooms 
provided you don't damage the plant, you don't dig the whole thing up and plow the forest to get it. Or right, right. It's not harmful. Yeah. What do you see as the future of wild foods? I'm sure your work is becoming more relevant and more widely accepted than ever. I know more and more people are getting interested in wild foods. Like you said, we all feel a connection with wild foods innately when we're introduced to it. What do you see as the future of wild foods? There's a danger in overdoing it, for sure. So we need to be protecting the environment the whole time. But they are absolutely marvelous, and there are various levels of it. Seaweed, for instance, is yeah. abundant everywhere and actually is a perfectly balanced food. It contains all the minerals from the soil. The soil, the rain, washes down the minerals from the mountains. They end up in the sea, and they end up in the seaweed. They end up in us. We carry the same sort of molecules as seaweed and as the natural soil from which it all comes, from which we come as well. So they are completely and utterly natural, totally good to eat. The Japanese appreciate it. The Japanese-Americans, I'm sure, appreciate it. Where this is at it in Europe. Yeah, that's interesting. So maybe in the future, we're going to identify wild food sources that may be a little less appreciate it up until this point, like the seaweed that washes up on the shore. So we're going to start keying into the most nutritious and most available wild food sources that are out there and kind of make sure that relationship remains sustainable. I'm sure it does. I'm sure, you know, there'll be people going to Greenland and harvesting seaweed in the future and making sustainable food out of it. I, I think it is going to be a piece of the answer to that question of how do we feed everybody sustainably. I think making use of some of these natural wild foods that are abundant uh, is going to be a big part of that, a big part of that future. And it sounds like you see much. When I was mucking about with seaweeds, I took some Japanese nori, you know, the sheets of yeah. seaweed paper they make and stuck it under the microscope. And I found six different seaweeds in that one little piece of worry under the microscope wow it's it's a mixture it's sort of ground up seaweed i guess so where they make it presumably they go down more or less collect everything grind it up and make the sheets of nori paper and work like yours that's examining the traditions of wild food in different places is probably going to be hugely important because your example of taking this knowledge from Japan and applying it to our own use of seaweed is going to be important. So we need to start connecting some of these pieces across the world. And you as a vegan, obviously, this sort of thing is immensely important. Absolutely. So maybe a more globalized picture of wild food helps us keep it the most sustainable and the most beneficial as we see what other people are doing. That would be a wonderful note to finish on. <laughs> well, is there any future work? Are there any future, obviously you've just put out this big book, but are there any future projects or plans uh, that you want to share with us? At the moment, I'm writing an autobiography. A lot of it's sort of funny stories about collecting and funny things that happened to me, some in America, some all over the place, some when I was quite a little child. You know, I'm 87, I guess as 
an awful lot of years of stories buried in there someplace. Oh, here Aww. comes. Oh, hey there, oh. buddy. Oh, hi, Bonnie. What a lovely cat. I, I am a cat person. We own dogs now, but I'm very much a cat person myself. That puts a big smile. We have Burmese. We have two. That beautiful dark face and those eyes. Yeah. It Maybe it is a chocolate Burmese. The names are a bit nonsensical, really. <laughs> because this is the Mushroom Hour, I do have a set of questions I like to ask most of my guests just to give us that last picture into the spirit or the core, if we can make such bold a statement. What is a mushroom that you love that you want to share with the audience? This doesn't have to be a favorite, and it could be a mushroom you love for any reason, whether it photographs nicely, it's a delicious edible, but just a mushroom you love and why. I love the one we call black trumpets. A friend of mine in America called them trumpet of death. Yes. Uh, yes. Which, you know, they have been called the black trumpet which is related to the chanterelle sort of family is a very funny and interesting thing to find because being black you'll see it amongst the leaves and you'll probably ignore it and think it's a hole but if you get down on your knees you'll probably find there are hundreds that you've been walking on and you fail to find them so when you find it you often find an awful lot of it and it is the most delicious edible and it's so versatile. And I, as someone who can't eat all the mushrooms, I find very quickly black trumpets lend themselves to dehydration, different forms of preservation so well. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. I don't think I have got a jar full. I do keep jars of dehydrated. I would imagine you have a collection of yeah, tons of dehydrated mushrooms. I those at the moment. And actually, a friend of mine who hunts black trumpets often says, look for holes in the ground. That's the quickest way you're going to find them. Yes. They look like holes in the ground. You're absolutely right. What a is clever man. Yes. Uh, and given your whole journey and life experience, looking back, what advice would you give to an 18-year-old Roger uh, if you would listen? I always have found taking advice very difficult. I basically... Turn off, I think, if I'm given advice. I have to explore it for myself. Once I've worked it out for myself, then it's firmly in my mind. I understand it, know what I'm doing, and that's quite different. But taking instruction, I find very difficult. So I was a difficult student, I think. I could imagine, as I said in my intro, you're a natural nonconformist. So that makes a lot of sense. 18-year-old Roger probably wouldn't want to hear anyone's advice. No, he wouldn't. What is the lasting impact that you hope to have given your work writing books, sharing this love of wild food with people? I know you're often present at wild food festivals. You're integral to the foraging community. What's the lasting impact you hope to have with your work? Well, I hope my books help people study plants. You know, once they've studied the plants, probably they can throw the book away and forget it. But I hope I've helped people make a step into discovering more about nature, plants, fungi, whatever it may be. Absolutely. I think you have certainly done that. As we were speaking before the show, I ended up picking up all of your books and even the ones that were written you know, a couple decades ago, I still find inspiring and relevant. And there's still bits of information in there. Some names may have changed, which is always happening with mushrooms, oh, especially. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's still great information in there and I think they still inspire today. Well, Roger, thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing your stories and sharing your knowledge. We've just scratched the surface of you know everything that you know, but I just appreciate you making the time and, and coming on Mushroom Hour. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Darren. When he was hungry, the death cat took all Claudius's life. It was a poisoning arranged by his wife. The Italians and the French are simply mad about substitute precise for Lucini. They would take your life and rust your limbs to every color of the rainbow, purple and green. Taste is the know for a trip around your mind. Psilocybin is the kind for you. Chanterelle, fiddling, there's morels in the spring. You have the milk cap and the truffle. Oh, what joy they can bring! Don't take it from these lyrics. Your guru and guide is Roger.